Our scripture reading this morning, 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me remind you that last week we looked at uh, verses 1 through 7. We'll pick up at verse 8 today. Uh, Verses 1 through 7 was the story of the widow with the two sons who were about to be sold into slavery to pay off a debt and the endless supply or nearly endless supply of oil. We turn now from the story of this poor widow to a different kind of woman. 2 Kings chapter 4, pick up at verse 8. Listen, this is God's word. One day Elisha went unto Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey, and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. 
But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not reply, and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, He returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to Yahweh. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. And he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. The following preview has been approved for all audiences. Those are the words you read at the beginning of those short clips of movies, and they're designed to entice and to motivate you to come back. They're designed to motivate you to make your way back into the theater to watch the whole movie when it is finally released, and you're told when it's coming. But they're also apt words to describe this story, which is a short preview of some greater and coming attractions. One, way, one of the ways we could read through this story again is, as we usually do, with a sense of plot development. There's an opening scene, there's a rise, and there's a fall, and then a rise again of the sun. But there's also movement in the story. There's Uh, Several different scenes that at different locations, the story takes us from a village to a house, to a room, to a farmer's field, back to the house, back to the room, onto the mountain, back to the house, back to the room, and there's movement. There's progression in the story. There's changes in location. But today, for a sense of variety to keep you on your toes, I want you to hear and rehear the story through the development of its characters. There are, of course, three main characters. There's a woman and then the son and the prophet. A few lesser characters, the husband, the household servants, and the servant of the prophet. Well, come back with me to the story and 
Look a little bit with me at this woman. From the start, we meet her. She lives in the village of Shunem, which is about 20 miles away or so from Mount Carmel, where the prophet hangs out normally. It's also just on the other side of a hill from a New Testament town called Nain. That's for free. It's a small, a rather insignificant town, hardly mentioned in the Old Testament. Its other claim to fame, though, is that it had produced Abishag, the Shunammite, who you may remember was the beautiful young woman brought in to be the old King David's human hot water bottle at the end of his life. I don't think that has much bearing on this story, but it's there, and there's a woman and an old man, at least that connection. The Shunammite woman in our story, though, has, like, has no name like so many other stories we've been seeing, but she is described in verse 8 as great, literally great, translated in our Bibles often as wealthy. And it's a word that includes wealth, it would seem, but also suggests some sense of prominence, some sense of standing in her community. And she stands out for a number of reasons in the story, not the least of which is that she's a woman. And in so many ways, she drives this story. The next thing we notice about her is her hospitality. She's wealthy, but she's generous. And somehow unprompted, she not only invites Elisha into her home, but she feeds him. And this becomes a kind of regular occurrence. And we then place her in that noble line of wealthy, generous women who supported gospel causes in the Bible. You could think of Rahab the prostitute or Abigail the wife of the fool Nabal, or Mary and Martha who served Jesus, or Lydia who supported Paul and funded the church at Philippi. And along with this, we have, uh, along with her wealth and generosity, her hospitality, we have this picture of spiritual discernment. She recognizes Elisha as she says to her husband, he's a holy man of God. And that's a term that will be used in many, uh, many ways through this story to describe him. But in other words, she wants to help him. She wants to serve him because he represents Yahweh, the Lord, in the land during a time when followers of the one true God are in the minority. And along with all these other qualities, she proves to be a woman of initiative. She makes things go. She gets things done. She persuades her husband that they're to do an extreme makeover to turn the upstairs uh, deck into a guest bedroom. It might be a simple room by our standards, just a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, but it provides a real place of rest and respite for Elisha in his travels. She's generous, she's wealthy, she's wealthy, she's generous. She's active and proactive, she's hospitable, and she welcomes the prophet of God as the very voice of God. 
In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends off his disciples on a mission, and he says to them, whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, I tell you truly, he will by no means lose his reward. And if that's the way Jesus thought about those who welcomed his disciples, it shouldn't come to as any kind of surprise to us when Elisha, on one of his apparently many trips through and stopovers at her house, calls the woman to stand before him and asks of her what he might do for her. What might I give? What might I do as a reward for your kindness? And she expresses contentment. She has a home. She needs no favors from the king. Life is good. She's all set. But then we learn there is a gap in her life. She does not have it all. She's childless, or at least she has no son. And her husband is as good as dead. He's an old man. He's unable to produce an heir. And of course, at this, we're invited to think back to all of the other occasions that sound like this. We think immediately, I hope, of, of, of Sarah, that barren woman, and of Abraham, her ancient husband, and of God promising to them a son, and, and them laughing, and Sarah laughing, thinking, how could, you, how could this possibly be? And then there's a steady succession of childless women in the Bible who, against all odds, are promised and then receive a son, all in the advancing of God's plan and purposes for his people. So when Elisha promises this woman a son, her reaction is not all that unlike Sarah. She thinks Elisha is pulling her leg. She can hardly believe it. Why would you deceive me? Is this some kind of a joke? And for most of us who are a little familiar with our Bibles, we are no longer surprised by verse 17. So the woman conceived and bore a son about that time, the following spring, just as Elisha told her. God promises, he delivers. Pardon the pun. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. And so this wealthy, benevolent, generous, hospitable woman who hosts the prophet, who gets things done now and finally also becomes the mother of a son. Life is good. What could possibly go wrong? A few years go by. We have no idea how many more stops Elisha makes at the house or how Elisha might have seen that child growing and playing in the yard or whatever. But the next picture we have is uh, of this woman is of her sitting in the house, holding her son on her lap while he complains of a splitting headache until he dies in her lap. 
But then we come to learn of her that her anguish over the death of her son does not blind her or paralyze her from action. And, and we see her faith on display in all kinds of ways, even though she was initially skeptical about the promise of a child in the first place, there's nothing really but faith on the part of this woman through the rest of the story as she goes in search of a solution. She puts the body of the dead boy in Elisha's room, on Elisha's bed. She tells her husband, everything is fine, all is well, shalom. I just need to run over to see the man of God on the mountain for a minute. I'll be right back. Everything's fine. She saddles up the donkey. She spurs them on, and she makes her way to the only man in the world she knows who can do anything at all about her dead son. She dodges Gehazi's question. She nearly pushes past him in her quest to get to see Elisha. She's the woman who rushes out of the elevator, barges past the receptionist, heads straight into the CEO's office and demands an audience. In her bitter distress, she lays hold of Elisha, points a finger at his chest, and she challenges him, did I ask you for a son? Did I not say to you, don't deceive me, don't play around with me, don't joke with me about this? In her grief, it's as if she would have reversed the words of Lord Tennyson. Tis better to have never loved at all than to have loved and lost. But this is a woman who gets things done. Her presence and her plea unsurprisingly yield results. She has little confidence in Gehazi at this point. She has little confidence in his ability to go ahead with Elisha's staff, which turns out to be a well-founded lack of confidence, although we can really not understand why. She insists on staying with Elisha. I won't leave you. And he interprets that to mean, I guess that means I'm going with you because you're not going to stay here. You want to go back to your home. And so he goes. She leads. She leads. He follows. And all the way back to her house they go and, and then she waits. And the next time we meet her, she's being called upstairs. She's reintroduced to her dead son who is now very, very much alive. And for the second time that day, she bows to the ground. She falls at the prophet's feet. And then she picks up her son and she exits the stage. She is the woman who had it all, but not a son. And then she had a son. And she lost her son, and she gained her son back from the dead. This woman will show up one more time in 2 Kings. We'll see that in several weeks. But she also shows up, although also unnamed, in that great Hebrews chapter 11. Remember all those who lived by faith, but who did not receive what was promised. One of the lines in Hebrews chapter 11, after listing all the great, as we sometimes call them, heroes of the faith, 
Through faith, the writer says, through faith, women received back their dead by resurrection. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, or not with us, they should not be made perfect. Here's a woman who had some little preview of what was to come, something far better that was coming and did come. But there are other characters in the story. There's the husband, the servants, and the son. Notice the husband is kind of a peripheral player. He only shows up in a few places, and just enough to keep the story interesting and to keep it moving along. We know that he's old. We know that he's a farmer. We also know he, he knows enough about child care that when the boy cried out in pain, he sent the boy with the servant to be with the mom. Some of you men might be able to relate. He doesn't understand why his wife is in such a hurry to see Elisha, uh, since it's not a feast day, it's not a new moon, not some kind of festival where one might expect God's people would gather in one place and presumably with the prophets to worship. And just like that, we don't hear from him again. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper says this. He says, in this family, the husband seems to be rather superfluous. And then there's Gehazi, the, our first introduction to Elisha's servant, at least by name. And if you were interested in evaluating him, you'd probably come back with mixed reviews. On the one hand, he's pretty responsive to his master, obeys his commands quickly, does what he asks him to do. Um, He also seems to be more aware of the fact that the woman is childless than Elisha himself is, at least initially. But on the negative side, he's not terribly empathetic, is he? He's not really aware of the woman in her distress. He's more interested in his role as a gatekeeper uh, to protect and preserve Elisha from, uh, from her tears and her needs. Sounds a little bit like the disciples who are trying to guard Jesus or push away parents with their babies as they came to Jesus in the New Testament. And then, of course, Gehazi fails in the mission with Elisha's staff. And again, we couldn't possibly know why unless it might be to confirm to us that the boy really is dead. Kind of like being buried for a couple of days to prove, establish death. And then, of course, in the story, there's the son Who knows what that son would ever remember of that day, if anything at all. But he's an improbable child born as a result of God's promise to a woman who could not have a child. And he grows up and he's old enough to run around in the fields and to be wanting to be near his father and the workers, but he's still uh, young enough to and small enough to be able to sit on his mother's lap with a crushing headache. And yet without him, this story is nothing. This son, 
this improbable son of the promise who grows up and who dies and then who's made alive and returned to his mother. Sounds like a few other stories in the Bible, doesn't it? Without the son, the story doesn't move. It doesn't have much meaning. But like every other story in the Bible, we should be less concerned about the woman and even uh, the servants and even the son as much as we might be asking, what is God doing in this story? And for this, we look at God's representative. We look at Elisha. What is Elisha doing in this story? He is God's representative on earth. And he might be much maligned by many, but he's welcomed and recognized by this woman. He promises a son as a reward for her faithfulness, for her generosity. And then he recognizes the plight of this woman, the distress she's in when she comes weeping at the death of her son, and he's moved with compassion, and he's persuaded by her persistence to go with her to help her. And when he sees the dead child, he prays to the Lord. He prays to the Lord, the giver of life, and he imitates his master, Elijah, because if you are listening to the story and you're thinking it sounds a little familiar, you might remember the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. That story combines the two stories in chapter 4 here. A widow who has a son who has, almost, has one last meal. They'll eat it together and they'll die. And in response to Elijah's request for food, she shows hospitality to him and ends up with an endless supply of flour and oil. They live for many days on that. And we come to discover Elijah is living in her house. And her son dies. And she comes to Elijah and complains. And Elijah takes the child up to his room and lays himself on top of the child and identifies with the dead child. It's as if the life of Elijah is transferred into the child and makes him alive, and he presents that child to his mother. And here Elisha goes to identify with the child as if his life goes into that dead boy, and that dead boy starts sneezing. And he comes to life. And we hear this. Elisha calls to the mother and says, here, here's your boy. Your son is alive. And just on the other side of the hill in the town of Nain, some six or eight hundred years, whatever it was later, Jesus meets a funeral procession coming out of that town. And there's a boy uh, who had died. And his widowed, now bereaved mother is walking out with a crowd. And Jesus gives a command to that boy that he couldn't possibly obey. He says, get up. And he does. And he presents that boy to his mother. Elijah and Elisha identify with a dead child. Through them the, and through the prayers to the Lord, the Lord grants life. 
restoring these boys, giving them back to their mothers, making their mothers whole and well, even a very poor widow and another poor widow and a very rich, wealthy woman. The following, or rather the previous previews have been approved for all audiences. What if this story is designed to motivate you to turn the page? To motivate you, to compel you, to persuade you to come out and see the rest of the story as it unfolds. And not only that, but to run to and cling to and worship the promised son who so identifies with dead people and has the power within him that he gives life. You, my friends, run to Jesus. Lay hold of him. Receive from him the life he has within him and that he freely gives to you and to all who would come. This is the better story. These are fascinating previews. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the ways you worked in the Old Testament. Thank you for these great stories that are woven together so beautifully and profoundly that evoke all kinds of images and connections and weave together this one grand story with one grand author that leads to one grand main character, our Savior. Thank you for his death, his resurrection. Thank you that in him we find life. Thank you for his improbable birth, for his faithful, obedient walk, for his willingness to die for us, and for the power with which you raised him by your spirit, that in him we might be dead to sin and alive to Christ. We ask, Father, that you would receive our thanks, help us to cling closely to him, to worship you and to say this truly is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Receive our thanks, we offer it in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen.